You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. On Max's Island today, we've got returning guest, Gareth Durrant. G'day, Gareth. Good to have you back on the island. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me back. Now, for those of you um, who aren't, aren't aware, Gareth is overseas. So this is the first time we've recorded uh, a Max's Island with an overseas guest. So, Gareth, just fill in our listeners on what's happened to you over the last eight months. Oh, a lot. If we looked at my passport over the last eight months i've been hitting it pretty hard there was a considerable amount of uh, travel in europe i left perth um eight plus months ago with the idea that i would come back within a short time frame i was off uh, for a little bit of uh, for a work gig i found my way to denmark and then dubai and then i was meant to go uh, back home to perth via cambodia um, ended up getting a gig in Pakistan. So then went directly from Pakistan to Bulgaria. And that was my first stint in Bulgaria. And then I have been bouncing around Europe, um, semi-based in Bulgaria, but um, doing a lot of work and play uh, in Europe. And it took me till I think Feb uh, to get back to Perth. And I was only there for a month and really enjoyed being back uh, in the fold or back home, my other home. And then, yeah, just uh, in March, I uh, wrapped things up and came back to Bulgaria. And it wasn't, it wasn't two or so days being in country that we then had a state of emergency declared. So I think those, those stamping of the passport and the running around the world is officially over. Um, and this is, this is home base for a while. You said part of the escapade around Europe last year was, was some work related and some social and just uh, part of your, your living your life. What was a, a particular highlight from a work point of view? And also, what was a particular highlight from a personal point of view? Yeah, that's a really great question. They, they often intermingle. Um, I feel like I'm in a really good place at the moment where I get to work often with people that I really respect and love. And they, you know, often wear two hats of both being like friends who I admire and then in a work setting, um, also really uh, admiring them. A lot of the work that I've done in Europe has blended some of my, I would call it my, my old gig 
which is mainly the public health uh, realm of things. So working on uh, HIV campaigns or working on a rollout of PrEP. It's a, a form of uh, prevention medication uh, for HIV. So working with a local uh, LGBT organization here in Bulgaria that are planning to roll it out uh, from a community perspective. So that's probably been a highlight. Um, often before I came to Bulgaria, there was a lot of questioning around Eastern Europe and progressiveness and, you know, ability to to engage with, you know, LGBT issues and things like that. Uh, I I ended up uh, connecting with one of the the bigger um, LGBT organizations here and started working with them, which has been a, a big highlight. On a personal note, I spent 10, 10 days in Rome, hated everything to do with like the general, like the Colosseum, the tourist bits, like a, that was not at all thing that I was interested in. And it was even hard ethically for me to engage with like going to the Vatican, like in terms of like even paying $10 to the Catholic church was not where I was at. But I hung out with a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in 15 years and we used to live together in China. And because of my kind of nomad status, I was just looking for a place to, to kind of extend my visa and Rome came up and I connected back with her and we had, yeah, we had a really great time and ended up spending most of my time in the suburbs. Um, so we would just go to markets and cook together and chat. And yeah, it was a very um, wholesome suburban Roman experience, which I think is really different from a lot of people who are hitting up the Colosseum and whatnot. One of the things that I did notice on Facebook was that you taste tested a lot of beer. So what's the beer like in Europe? Well, I, I tell you what, what's interesting for me beer wise is the place I live uh, here in Bulgaria. So it's 300 kilometers from the capital city of Sofia. It's a place called Sliven. Weirdly, this town is, is like completely um, not off the map. It's not that remote, but it's just un. Uh, unremarkable to a lot of Bulgarians. So you, you, you explain to a Bulgarian that you live in, in Sliven and they're, they're, their next question is why? Like, why do you live there? Um, but interestingly, locally, there's a group of young people who have just started up Sliven's first craft beer brewery and their tap house is about 100 metres from my house. And it's been so delightful to, you know, uh, kind of see this, you know, like craft beer in Australia is well established. And yes. you know, it's gone from being kind of indie, you know, microbrewery to like everyone's doing um, craft beer as part of their, their mainstream production and things like that. It's highly commercialized. And obviously it's getting that way here. It's getting a little bit more, yeah, mainstream, but it just, it's like the most hipster thing in the world. But like, you know, I was in Sliven before it was cool and I was like hanging out at a local indie craft beer place uh, before other people knew about it. So finding these like little gems of, I guess, like parts of the economy or cultural stuff that are just starting up and you get to be involved in this kind of beginning phase of things. It's been really exciting. And obviously Europe's got a really established wine culture, but the craft beer um, has been a really interesting um yeah, a really interesting uh, learning point, particularly here in, in Sliven, and it's good to be able to support them as well. So that level of entrepreneurship and small business, do you see any social entrepreneurship happening in Sliven or around uh, Bulgaria in general? Hmm. I mean, not, not enough, no. And maybe there's layers of it that they don't necessarily self-identify as that or it's not explicit, but, you know, implicitly there are some other things going on. The LGBT organization I'm working with have, have 
started construction of a kind of cafe co-working space. So it's going to be an integrated SDI clinic, you know, food, coffee, um, a place where people can work, but also a place to, sh- to screen their own kind of film festival and things like that. So it's, it's kind of like an activated space or a, a kind of community space, but it's, it's very specifically also a business. And I think they felt that having a standalone kind of overtly, you know, rainbow flag type, you know, drop-in center or community thing wasn't really going to fit within the, the cultural landscape, but something that was, you know, welcoming and inclusive and the people who know, know, um, and the people who don't still enjoy good coffee and a really great atmosphere and kind of cultural events and things like that. Yeah, I think they went down that path because it was just a more of a cultural fit. And they're only in a construction phase, but at least I'm seeing, you know, something as cool as, you know, kind of progressive HIV prevention being mixed with um, social entrepreneurship. So that's, that's definitely heartening to see. And, you know, Bulgaria is well into Eastern Europe. What's the general feel like in terms of, um, you know, the respect for individuals and, and freedom of individuals? Um, I, think, I think having gone through communism and then the fall of communism, individual rights are something that's quite, I don't know, like uh, held in, in, in high esteem. Like when, you, when, when in living memory you didn't get to choose where you lived or, you know, what, what, what career you got to choose or... Um, you know, you, freedom of movement was restricted. So there's only certain countries that you could visit or, um, or whatnot. So I think people hold it uh, very strongly. But at the same time, there is still like a strong traditional fabric here where, you know, we're about to have Orthodox Easter. So Easter hasn't come and gone yet in Bulgaria. And I think there's a lot of people who, because of their faith and because of their traditions, you know, will be really focused on making sure that they go to the Orthodox Church and, um, you know, meet with family. So, like, maybe that's part of the, the individualness, but there's also a, a, a hue there that says, um, you know, we're really kind of ingrained with our traditions. And even though uh, there's something with COVID, uh, we're still really focused on doing the right thing and the, the Bulgarian tradition of meeting over Easter and, and going to church. So you just mentioned COVID in Australia, where um, uh, there's quite clear uh, state-based directions around uh, restrictions of movement and you know a whole lot of other uh, things. The way we need to be leading our lives. What's it like over there? And how strict is it? How uh, quick were they to move and introduce those sort of um, restrictions? And you know, what is the scenario of COVID in Bulgaria? Yeah, I think I think it's twofold. There are specific things that uh, Bulgaria is doing. So, you know, I think I arrived on the twelfth. By the fourteenth, we had a state of emergency, and it lasted for a month. And then, partway through this first month, they've extended it for a second month. The state of emergency was relatively strict from the get-go. So, no shops that were not uh, pharmacies or supermarkets were allowed to be open and kids were already off school so they they just didn't go back and interestingly they were off school because there was higher rates of flu so it was kind of like a flu break that they were already on anyway um, and that was already an established mechanism if you know there's a bunch of flu going going around kids stay home uh, from school for that so things just kind of went up a gear 
And then most recently, now in our second month of um, state of emergency, there is kind of more specific guidance. So we, it's mandatory to wear masks if you go outside. So you have to wear a mask um, outside. And they've also started to restrict kind of parks and public spaces. So it's a little unclear if we're kind of allowed to exercise. So essentially the idea is you only go out if you're seeking medical care, going to a pharmacy or going to a supermarket. However, you're also not allowed to go to a park. So like, I understand that in the context of jungle gyms and, you know, don't go hanging on a park bench with friends. Uh, But in the terms of I live next to a mountain range, is it still okay for me to go hiking and things like that on a mountain trail away from other people? And I am doing that on a relatively regular basis because otherwise I'd be a lot crazier. Uh, So it's nice to get out and actually do that. But the other layer that I was mentioning before is really interesting because it's, it's sleuthing. Like it's very different to be in Australia as an English speaking Australian, listening to bulletins, getting new advice and stuff like that. But for me, like my, my Bulgarian's not strong enough to be listening to, you know, state media. So I have to go via, obviously, uh, English uh, websites and then also like checking in with my Bulgarian friends. It's like, oh, well, what does that actually mean for, for how things are going? So that's been really interesting as well. And, and I guess it's really helped me think through the empathy that, you know, if you were a, you know, a backpacker or if you were someone that was uh, a bit more transient in a space that you didn't speak the language, like, you know, how would you as a non, non-French speaking uh, traveller work out new policies as they emerge uh, in France or Italy or, or whatever it is. Um, so that's been interesting to think through as well. What's the enforcement level like? You know, is it you know, military or police or local constabulary or, or what is it? So I think the experience is really different in maybe some of the bigger cities. There's certainly fines for people that congregate and uh, don't practice social distancing. Technically, you can be fined for not wearing a mask now as well. And the fines can be quite a lot. So it could be like $1,000 or something like that. Like that's the upper uh, upper scope of it. There's just not enough p- police to actually, you know, mobilize that many people to, to be wandering the streets and tapping people on the shoulder and, and things like that. But there's also reports of um, more heavy-handed stuff. So like some municipalities have mayors and other people in power who are using this to kind of establish more of a power uh, game uh, where they are. So they want to be seen as a strong, strong person. So they'll be demolishing and removing concrete benches in parks to kind of show that they mean business and taking the national guidelines up a few notches and things like that. So it has been interesting to hear stories of you know, other municipalities that are actually quite heavy handed and not necessarily for any other reason than than to kind of show their power. But then there's also places like this where, you know, there's just not enough police for, for them to be actually worried about it. Most of the attention at the moment is on intercity travel. So I think the police are focused on roadblocks and, you know, checks if you're going to a city and you don't have a reason to go there or, or travel. Not really like whether or not I'm wearing a mask as I walk, you know, down a mountain trail or, or whatever it is, or at least not yet. And I'm really interested to, to know what's the reporting like in Bulgaria of what's happening in the US? It's very strong in Australia. Obviously, the, the daily Trump press conferences are covered and um, it's a, a point of discussion. What's it like uh, in Europe? I think, and this is 
this really needs to be taken with a pinch of salt because it's not necessarily my uh, subject matter expert. But it it is really interesting to see how I think the reporting is going. So, you know, Bulgaria is doing very well when it comes to Europe more broadly. And it's doing very well even just in this region in terms of the Balkans. You know, we've got 700 cases, there's 7 million people. Uh, they started early. They were restrictive, but 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 humane and and, you know, methodical, but not you know, autocratic and, you know, it's, it's, it's been a really good response from, from my perspective, but also they, they have their own kind of insecurity about being part of Europe. Um, you know, they have had a hard border obviously with Turkey and they are very focused on making sure that they're not an entry point for like exacerbation of the issue in Europe. So they were already pretty quick to make sure that they were being a good EU citizen, um, from the get go. And I also think that it's been really interesting because most of my experience of being in Bulgaria for the first you know, time I was here was focused on what do they think of America and what do they think in comparison of Russia. So obviously that there is an affinity to Russia, but there's also like an affinity to the West. And often places like Bulgaria are areas in which those two powers get to play out, you know, influence either in media or, or whatever it is. But because we're not getting any reporting from Russia, I would be really fascinated to hear how local language media are reporting on kind of, because it's a very EU response. Like it's about their their obligations to the greater EU and about their use of like Western medicine and practices in terms of uh, public health. And because I'm not hearing anything else in, in the juxtaposition, like Russia is doing better in this way, or this is why Russia, a Russian approach is better. There just seems to be a more glowing uh, and more kind of progressive Western uh, response to what I'm seeing. But yeah, I wonder what, what's happening on, in, in Bulgarian language media. Maybe there's, maybe there's other things going on that I, I haven't you know, come across that are possibly you know, praising China as a, a Russian ally and, and things like that. But yeah, I think you've given me a homework assignment. So Gareth, just in winding up, and you know, this is a pretty open question in terms of what's your future over the next few months, bearing in mind that you know, lockdown is uh, something that you have no control over. What's, what's your journey over, or what do you perceive your journey over the next, say, six months? And how do you see work playing out and also just you personally? Yeah, I mean, the work piece is interesting because I was already juggling both travel, but also like bouncing between Bulgaria and and Perth. And the idea was to be able to work seamlessly. So it didn't matter if I was in Perth helping an LGBT organization in Bulgaria, or I was in Bulgaria helping a not-for-profit in Perth. Like it was meant to be seamless. And I had gotten 75% there pre-COVID anyway. And I think the rest of of the work kind of spaces has just kind of uh, flowed that way anyway. So I think when you're already working at a, you know, 80% online space anyway, the transition wasn't that difficult. And in fact, if you're already known for someone that does a lot of this work, more work comes your way in a, in a time like this. So uh, work-wise, I'm pretty, pretty sorted, but I, I guess the caveat was I always was, as long as I had a laptop, kind of working anyway. So I, was pretty prepared, I felt pretty prepared for this. In terms of like the actual planning ahead for six months, it's going to be really difficult because June, like first week of June is when my visa uh, runs out. So unless there's some sort of amnesty for people in the Schengen zone or outside the Schengen zone, depending on their visa and, and their location, 
uh, to extend or, or, you know, uh, overstay in some way, then I'm definitely going to have to leave. And the only place I, I have as a, as another home base is Perth. Perth would obviously involve a flying through some sort of transit hub. And at the moment, uh, it's slim pickings with Singapore and Hong Kong and a lot of my traditional transit hubs are not taking any transit passengers. Qatar is one airline that's still running and that might be an option. But yeah, it's essentially like a weird domino effect of, do I get amnesty? Can I stay longer? If not, how do I get from my city to the capital? Is there a flight going from that capital to somewhere else that's a transit hub? Does that transit hub have any flights to Perth? When I get to Perth, what does quarantine look like at that point? And that was a lot about my uh, decision-making process too. Before I get stuck in Doha for two weeks or, you know, can get to London but can't get out of London, why not stay as long as I can in a place where I am at least, you know, sorted out for the first three months of this. So yeah, six months is a long way away. So I don't know. June, June will be the next milestone and I'm hoping to get some clarity on what that all means. But yeah, I have to wait and see. Well, if I can give you some advice, don't jump on a cruise ship somewhere in the Mediterranean thinking you're going to come to Perth. But yeah, no, cruise ships, what a, what a nightmare. And yeah, I think, I think it's going to be a hard push to get anyone on, on a cruise ship again, surely. Yeah, so stop the boats means a totally different thing in WA now after our experience with a couple of uh, cruise ships just coming into Perth and saying we're not going. Really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be something that we're going to think through uh, a lot more in the future. And I think, you know, my own, you know, we started this conversation about me just like bouncing around Europe with no, you know, fixed address and like the immense privilege that I, that obviously, you know, came with, but also just that's not ever going to happen. Like you, you can't... Yes. With that sort of life, and, and also in terms of, you know, carbon footprint and things like that. I mean, I've really had a lot to think about over the, over the last uh, two months or so in, in isolation. And, and ultimately, I think it's a really good thing. Well, Gareth, thanks for joining me again on Max's Island. It's been a really interesting um, discussion and understanding what it's like as an expat living in a foreign country. And in a time that is, as you just said, really unique and quite different. So thanks for being on Max's Island and uh, keep safe. Thanks a lot. We spoke on the bus on the way home from work. He was lost in the details of life. Each day was a blur, all work and no play. And how, how it had turned out this way He told me his plan, a short-term escape Five weeks on the Bibbulmin track Go it alone, no one to blame If he finished or fell by the way
sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone. 